I love the spring in Savannah. Um, I, I don't know about y'all, but I, I, every year I'm reminded of how much I love it. There's a gigantic, uh, out-of-control azalea bush in front of my house that is like solid pink right now. I, like, I walked out the door one day this week, and I was like, Erica, it's like it just happened. It's like, Erica, you got to come see this. There's, like a, there's this azalea, and then there's a um, dogwood tree, and it's white, and that's pink, and it's just, it's just stunning. And uh, it just, I, I, don't, I don't know how much thought we give, you know, or more, maybe we should give more, but just to the beauty of God's creation, and so thankful for where we live. Don't talk to me in August, but right now, I think this is amazing. It's great, and I, I don't know, I, it just gives me a sense of, like, if, if God can, you know, make, make that bush become that all of a sudden, you know, what, what does he have in store for us when we open our eyes in, in heaven for the first time. I think it's, it's going to be truly breathtaking. Um, I would mention, though, that you may have noticed, so we are now in the air conditioning time of year, okay? So, uh, you know, switch from tank tops in the winter to, you know, b- blankets in the spring and summer, uh, but it, it seems as though this is, this is where we'll be now uh, moving forward, so keep that in mind as you come to church. You can shiver. All right, um, so we're going to begin a short series uh, for a few weeks on elders. Um, So to some of you, this probably seems like kind of the eat your vegetables sermon. You're you're pulling out your phone right now, and you're looking for Airbnbs in Florida for next week. Uh, In my middle age, I have come to realize that vegetables can be actually quite delicious when prepared properly, except for carrots. So I I hope that we can enjoy this study over the next few weeks. Um, I don't know how much attention you pay to these things, but church leadership in general is coming under increased and intense scrutiny. And some of the scrutiny is very much deserved. Ungodly and accountable leadership has shipwrecked many churches and has done real harm to people. And pastors and elders have used the church as a means of increasing their own bank accounts, satisfying their own immoral desires, and building up their own platforms. And those who have abused their positions in the church will bear responsibility uh, for what they've done. On the other hand, I do think that there are many congregations out there who don't eat their vegetables, as I said earlier. And so too many Christians would rather hear seven steps to a happier marriage than the biblical characteristics of godly pastoral leadership. And in my experience, at least for what I've seen, it's often too late when Christians finally turn to the scriptures to to see what it has to say about church leadership. It's too late and God's God's word has already been ignored. We, We have Legos in our house. It's a recurring theme this morning. Uh, but, you know, so some of, some of my, my boys will get a, a Lego, uh, and they will meticulously follow the instructions. And then some of my boys will get a Lego, and they'll go really quickly and not meticulously follow the instructions. And what inevitably happens is, even if you skip over some of the really small bits in the construction, seemingly insignificant, it causes problems later on, and things don't work right. I've seen pastors skip over passages related 
to pastors and elders and accountability right in the middle of a book. Possibly it was boring. Possibly it was too close to home. Almost certainly it wasn't by accident. And in a church like ours, I would imagine that there are some of you sitting here today who have had all kinds of experiences with church leadership. Some of you have seen the worst. Some of you may have experienced that for yourselves. Some of you are skeptical about church leadership. Some of you have had really good experience with church leadership in other churches. And some of you just don't care. You would just like to stay out of it. And all of this, I would say, is why we need to eat our vegetables this morning and for the next couple of weeks. At Hope, just so we're clear from the outset, we believe that the Bible teaches that the church is to be led by a group of godly, accountable elders. There is not one single leader in this church. There is a plurality of leaders. And the New Testament has a lot to say about church leaders and two church leaders and two church members about church leaders. And we don't have to feel our way in the dark when it comes to elders. So in this short series, I want us to consider the character of elders and the role of elders. What is it that elders actually do? How can Hope Bible Church maintain godly, accountable elders? How does the body deal with an elder who is sinning? How should you as a member of hope relate to the elders? And how are we going to raise up new elders? And the Bible offers us answers to all of these and other questions, and I want to do our best over the next few weeks to consider these things carefully and biblically. And I would encourage you, if you have questions that arise from the things that I say, I want you to bring those to the elders. And as an elder, it falls to me to preach about elders. So I just want to do my best to, to faithfully attempt to teach the scriptures on this topic that can be very, very controversial today. All right? So the first question I want to ask, and we're going to ask two questions this morning, but I want to ask, where uh, where do the elders come from? Who are the elders? All right? And, and to some, I think this all sounds very mysterious. I, I, I think it sounds almost like something from a, of a science fiction novel, the, the elders. And some churches, I would say, make it more mysterious than it, than it should be. You know, tell the elders to go and get out the scrolls and determine if we should have a men's cookout in two weeks. It's very mysterious. The elders, have you asked the elders? I, I sometimes think it's as, though, it's as though the elders are like in a room here somewhere, and sometimes I just sort of pop my head in and say, hey guys, men's cookout next week? All right, good. Like, how does, how does this all work? There's mystery involved in it. And there's also a tendency, I think, to make generalizations about the elders, okay? So, some put all elders on a pedestal, like they're all good all the time. They're on a different plane than everybody else. And unfortunately, I do think that view of elders leads to a lot of disappointment because sooner or later, you get to know an elder and you find out he's not as perfect as you thought he was. Some see all elders as trolls, who are out for themselves, no elder is to be trusted, and all motives are to be questioned. And then I would say, too, increasingly today, what you hear is that elders are ignorant. 
They, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're going. I would like to say that the elders of most churches, I believe, including the elders of Hope, are not perfect, but they're not out for themselves. They're aware of the job that's been entrusted to them, but they want to do it better, all right? They're not the Jedi. They're men who come from among us. We know their families. They have jobs, many of them. They are men who sin sometimes, and they're men who want to seek the Lord and do what's right. And so I want to answer this question of who are the elders this morning from a passage that you might not expect. Open with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. This is an interesting story. It's one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. It involves Paul bringing the gospel to a church in Thessalonica, or to a city called Thessalonica, and planting a church in Thessalonica. Let me read to you uh, from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So Paul's regular practice, as we learn here, was that he would come to a new city to begin a gospel work, and he would find the synagogue. And he would go in there, as was his custom, as verse 2 says, and he would reason with them. He would talk to them, and he was, he was looking for God-fearers. He was looking for Jews and proselytes who were already acquainted with the Old Testament. So he's, he's looking for people who already have the background with whom he can share the message of Jesus Christ, because they might be open to hearing the gospel. And so what we hear in this passage is that Paul came into Thessalonica, and he was there in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. And verse 4 says, some were persuaded. That is, some of the Jews in that synagogue and a great many devout Greeks and prominent women, they gave their lives to Christ. The gospel bore fruit in Thessalonica people who did not know Jesus, people who perhaps had never even heard of this Jesus of Nazareth who was ministering down on the Mediterranean Sea, now they believe in him, they believe that he is the Son of God, they believe that he has risen from the dead, and they become followers of Jesus. And I would just say, praise God, the Word of God is effective. 
and it is still effective today. But in this passage, then, the trouble starts. So the Jews become jealous. So some of the Jews believe in Jesus, but as always, some of them get angry, and they form a mob. They attack the house of Jason, drag him before the city authorities, and then according to verse 10, the brothers get Paul and Silas together and send them out of town to Berea, probably to get them to safety. So what does all this have to do with elders? Well, we know that Paul was in Thessalonica for at least three weeks because the text says that he was there for three Sabbaths. The text doesn't say how long he was there before he was run out of town, but it couldn't have been long. So let's just take conservatively that Paul was in Thessalonica for six weeks. And here's what we know. In those six weeks, Paul planted a church in Thessalonica. Among those first converts were some Jews and some believing Gentiles, and he didn't have very long to train up those brand new Christians. And let me read to you then, don't turn there, but from Acts 14, this is what we read about Paul's habit when he established churches. It says, and when they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So not only has Paul planted a church and and seen Jews and Gentiles come to faith in Christ, but most likely before he's run out of town, he appointed elders in this fledgling church. No worship band, no youth ministry, not even a completed New Testament. By our estimation today, certain to fail. But sometime later then, Paul writes the book that we know of, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and he writes to the church of Thessalonica, and he expresses great relief because clearly when he left there, he was worried for them, he was worried that they would stay in the faith, and now he has heard that the church there is thriving. They're not perfect, they're actually really messed up. Some of them think the, the Lord has already come back and they missed him, and Paul has to straighten that out in the book of 1 Thessalonians, but he is able to rejoice. He says, I rejoice that you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, so Jesus promises in Matthew 16 that he will build his church. And I've got a shelf full of church planting books in there, and they're filled with tried and true methods, and none of them would recommend starting a church and bouncing after six weeks. None of them would recommend appointing elders that are weeks in the faith, and most of them would probably recommend that you don't come in and stir up a bunch of trouble in the city, have one of your members get dragged out into the street, and then get run out of town. But Jesus is really faithful to build his church under all circumstances, even the ones that seem impossible to us. And God raises up churches in different ways and sometimes with very unimpressive Christians, and I would say unimpressive Christians and even unimpressive elders are sometimes more fit to be used by God because it can be more evident that God is working through them and that it's not their own talent and ability. All right, so so here's what I want you to see from Paul's time in Thessalonica. Number one, it was Paul's practice to start churches and appoint elders. 
There's no such thing as a church in the New Testament without elders. We are not told that Paul appointed a senior pastor, deacons, or any kind of governance board, right? He appointed elders. And it was Paul's practice to appoint elders from within the churches, okay? So he did not, as far as we know, establish a school for elders. He did not bring in elders from the outside. The elders were of the church where they ministered. They were men who were at home there and known to the members of the flock. And so therefore, I believe we can assume that in Thessalonica and all the other churches of Asia Minor where Paul ministered, that Paul appointed men who were available, willing, of good character, and of some maturity. So Hope Bible Church is about four and a half years old. And so for those of you who have come later, when we started out, we had what we called a leadership team. And after a year, the congregation appointed those men as elders, and we did that intentionally so that it could be clear that the elders were men who came from among us. And our desire from the beginning has been that our elders would be the men that God gives us within hope. And the elders of hope will look different than other churches, churches that you've been a part of, maybe even churches that you know of, because hope is different than those churches. So the elders in Thessalonica, where Paul ministered for only a few weeks, looked very different from the elders of, say, the church in Jerusalem that had been in existence for some time by this point. The elders at a church that has had faithful biblical ministry for 40 or 50 years will look very different from the elders of a church that is brand new. The elders of a church in Savannah will look different than the elders of a church, say, of a house church in China. And I'm not saying any of this because I think that any church should have low standards for elders, and certainly every church should have biblical standards for elders, but I do think that all churches should have realistic standards for elders, biblical, realistic standards. So we don't want to have standards for elders that are lower than the Bible's, we also don't want to have standards for elders that are more than the Bible's. And we want to regard our elders with the respect that the Bible prescribes. So here's the thing. Here's the shocking statement for section number one here. There are some future elders of Hope Bible Church sitting in this room right now. Some of you have never considered being an elder. Some of you younger men, teenagers, and even little boys, I hope will grow up to be elders either here at Hope or in other churches wherever the Lord may take you. We need to be teaching our children what elders are and praying that they might grow up to be elders. Because here's the thing. If you're sitting here right now and saying, I will never be an elder, that's fine. But I don't want you to say that because you've misunderstood or had an unrealistic perspective of what that means. Because the men that God intends to raise up to lead this church will come from the people who sit in these pews. All right, let me mention a few other things about elders in this section about who are elders. First of all, I need to say, elders are men. Okay, so Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. All right, and I do believe that this passage settles the question about women elders. Paul prohibits women from doing two things in reference to the men of the church, 
teaching and exercising authority over men. 1 Timothy 5.17 says that elders lead and teach the church. Therefore, it follows that women cannot be elders. And I know there's much more that can be said here. This is not a sermon on men's and women's roles. But if we're going to answer the question, who are the elders, biblically, I can't leave this out. And so for most of church history, I do believe that this was just acceptive practice. Probably over the last part of the last century, it became sort of quaint, uh, you know, seen by more progressive Christians as, oh, you, you silly people who just have, you know, men for elders. Today, to many ears, this sounds misguided at best and wicked and abusive at worst. This would be one of those things that I think some pastors would be tempted today to just skip over. But at Hope Bible Church, we're going to follow the Bible in spite of the prevailing cultural winds, and we will talk at some point in the future about men's and women's roles. But for now, I simply want to say that I believe one can affirm the dignity and importance of wisdom uh, of women and affirm God-given roles for men and women within the family and within the church. All right? So elders are to be men. Secondly, elders are generally older men. Ideally, elders are made up of older men in the congregation, men who have lived through different stages of life and gained wisdom. So the concept of elders doesn't just appear out of nowhere in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we, we find the mention of elders. The first mention of elders is, is Genesis chapter 50. It says, so Joseph went up to bury his father, that's Jacob, and with him all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his household and the elders of the land of Egypt. Okay, so these were older men. They were representatives of families. In Exodus 3.16, Moses assembles the elders of Israel to tell them that God is going to lead them out of, Israel, of, of, of Egypt. And Proverbs 31, speaking of the, the godly wife, says, Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. And the gates in those days had rooms. They were gate systems. That had to do with making sure that somebody didn't, you know, take a battering ram and ram through your gate. But within those rooms sat judges and elders, and they were just the old men from the city. And if you had a, a transaction to take place or a question that you wanted answers, Answer to, you went to the elders of the city and the gates. So it's, it's really not something that you appoint. It's something that you recognize. Elders are already doing the work among us. Ordination, when we ordain an elder, it's not a bar exam that says, this man can now commence dispensing wisdom to younger people. It's simply the church acknowledging the character and the gifts and the ministry that are already taking place. So I'm 49 years old. I really am. Like, I'm not just saying that. Like, I'm 49. I know that's something people say, but I'm actually 49. In some churches, I would be a young elder. And that's true of all of our elders. But just like I said, the elders at Hope are going to look different than the elders of other churches. Providentially, at 49, here, I'm one of the older men in this church. Hopefully, over the next 10 years, that will change. But for now, we have the elders that God has raised up among us. And then finally, I would say one of the most important points of who are the elders is they are men who desire to be an elder. 
I don't want to compel anybody to serve as an elder against their will. A very important passage in this regard is 1 Peter 5, and we'll be, we'll be circling back and forth in 1 Peter 5 throughout the next couple of weeks. But in verses 1 and 2, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. We want elders who want to shepherd the flock. Peter says, not under compulsion, but willingly. I don't want to force anybody into being an elder because there are challenges. As an elder, you will be criticized. There are times as an elder when you will feel like you are sticking your head up so that somebody can shoot at you. And the challenges of being an elder, somehow they don't often spread themselves out. They come in waves. And if you have been forced into being an elder, there's a chance that you'll say, see, I didn't really want to do this anyway. That's why it's good for us to be clear about the roles and the expectations of being an elder, because it's good for you to know what you're getting into. But I hope that some of you will want to be an elder, or will eventually. Second Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 3, which is sort of the famous passage about the, being, uh, the character, the qualifications of being an elder, Listen to Paul's first statement in verse 1. He says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that's a synonym for elder, he desires a noble task. So clearly Paul is saying it's good for you to aspire to be an elder. And there are rewards, and we'll talk about this some later on, but, but Peter says at the end of the, that, that section in, in chapter 5, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading of glory. So there are rewards to being an elder, rewards in heaven, and I would say there are rewards right now because as an elder, I get a front row seat very often to all of the really good things that the Lord is doing in this church. Yes, there's some hard things, but there's a lot of really good things as well. So who are the elders? They are men from among us. They are men of good character with a reputation of wisdom they're generally men who are older, at least in relation to the congregation, and they are men who desire the office of elder. All right, so now I want to turn, I want to answer another question, okay? So the second question, and this is the, the we'll finish here this morning, but I want to define biblical eldership. What is biblical eldership? And for this, I want to say I am grateful to a man named Alexander Strauch, who has put a ton of thought into this. He's written a book called Biblical Eldership. He's written another book about Acts 20 that we received at one of those conferences we went to a couple of years ago. When we have gone together to the Shepherds 360 conference in, in Cary, North Carolina, Alexander Strauch is a frequent speaker there, and he's been very influential and helpful in helping us understand what an elder is. And I'll send out some of these resources. Some of them are online, and you guys can look at these things. So what is biblical eldership? I want to refer to two passages, one from Peter and one from Paul, about charges to elders, okay? So the first one is in Acts 20, verse 28, and we'll be living in Acts 20 over the next couple of weeks. But Paul tells the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. And then again, Peter, same passage in verse 5, 1 and 2, 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. In both cases, Peter and Paul charge the elders to shepherd the flock. Those who lead God's people are called shepherds in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the New Testament, Peter and Paul assign the task of shepherding to elders alone. Paul says, pay attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So the church of God is parallel with the flock. It is God's church, it is God's flock, and he has appointed elders to oversee it. So then what does shepherding involve? And there's a lot that we can say here, and we'll say more over the next couple of weeks, but let me just say this. Shepherding, the image of shepherding, involves long hours, being alert for the safety of the flock, leading the flock to water and pasture, carrying the weak, seeking the lost, taking care of the sick, and training the young. One writer says this about shepherding. It is a subtle blend of authority and care, as much toughness as tenderness, as much courage as comfort. If you want to understand what an elder should be, then you should think about the imagery of shepherding. New Testament elders protect, feed, lead, and care for God's flock. Elders in the New Testament are always plural, okay? So just so you're clear, there's one chief shepherd. His name is Jesus Christ. All other elders are under shepherds. We are under his authority. The members of the body are his sheep. I'm a sheep and I'm an under shepherd. And elders are responsible to him for the care of the sheep. Let me speak about what elders are not. Elders are not a board of directors. If you've ever been on a board of directors for an organization, we are not that. We are not policymakers. We are not finance officers. We are not fundraisers. Elders are not assistants to the pastor. They are all pastors. So biblically speaking, to be an elder is to be a shepherd. A shepherd lives among his sheep. If you don't like sheep, you probably got no business being a shepherd. If you don't like people, you got no business being an elder. And we'll get to the roles of elders, but I believe that if the elders of the church, if the elders of Hope Bible Church were to only spend our time praying and ministering to the needs of the flock, we will not stand before Jesus and have him say, I'm disappointed in that work you did. I think we could only do that, and I think God would take care of other things through other means. Yes, There are things that need to be done financially. There are buildings that need to be taken care of and things to be planned. But the elders should not let those things distract them from shepherding people. And some of that work is done by deacons, which we'll talk about a little bit at the end. There's an intimacy to this picture of elders as shepherds that I think, frankly, most people find off-putting. So a lot of Christians today will say that they are looking for community. And there's a lot of good about seeking community. That's seeking those who have shared interests. That's great. This is a give and take relationship depending on one another. That's great. There's a desire to know and be known. But I think there's a real egalitarian strain 
in that concept, that desire for community. And many who are looking for community today are not looking for elders. They want a facilitator. They think they're fine the way they are. They're not looking for an elder who the Bible has said is to keep watch over their souls. And like we said a couple of weeks ago, most people today want someone they can talk to who won't speak back to them. That's different than being a part of a flock that is the church and putting yourself under the leadership of shepherd elders. It's going to be a trumpet when Jesus comes back, so that's just a plan. But that would be great. Men who, as Peter says, keep watch over your souls. And, and by the way, to say that there are men who keep watch over my soul implies that I don't always know what my soul needs. I may need help, and I may not even know it. And I'm willing to expose myself to people who will help me see that. So there's an intimacy in, in shepherding elders because the shepherd knows the sheep and the sheep know him. I'm sorry to say it. There's so much we can say about sheep that is not very, uh, it doesn't make you like feel good about yourself, right? Sheep are stinky. Shepherds are stinky because the sheep stink. And remember, in this whole setup here, somehow the elders are sheep and we're shepherds. So, you know, we can work through that. We talked a couple of weeks ago about coming to the elders for refreshment when you are weak and weary. Any good shepherd carries the burdens of the sheep who are hurting and wandering and weak and weary. When I don't see you for a while, I worry about you. I, I do. I carry that burden. I'm not saying that for pity, but I wonder what's going on. Sometimes the sheep make choices or they say things to me and I'm troubled. And there are many times when I have to pray, is now the right time to say something to this person? Are they willing or ready to hear? And a shepherding elder has to pray and seek wisdom about when to address those things. Another thing the shepherding imagery applies is authority. And that's a loaded word these days. Nobody likes that word authority. It rubs people the wrong way. This is the shepherd elder is not a facilitator. A shepherd has a crook. It has a hook at the end of it. Sometimes it's used for prodding the sheep. Sometimes it's used for wrapping around their neck and pulling them out of a situation. I wish I, wish I could have shown you. Uh, I, I was trying to figure out these things that you see on the internet. It's hard to just pop it up on our screen. But I, I saw a, a man and he was pulling a, a sheep out of a ditch and it was a lot of work and everything was getting wet and he finally pulls the sheep out of the ditch and the sheep goes out and runs twice around in a circle and then goes right back into the ditch. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it is to be a shepherd. And sometimes we have to pull people out of danger and they seem like they want to run right back to it. The concept of being an elder throughout the scripture involves older men who are wise and have something to say to younger people who characteristically are not. Younger people are told to seek the wisdom of the wise. Young people who know everything and refuse instruction are called fools, and elders are there to help them. I'll tell you what I think is the most troubling and terrifying verse in the scriptures, and some of you already know what I'm going to say, regarding elders. Hebrews 13, 17. It is troubling for church members, and it is terrifying for elders. It says this, Obey your elders, obey your leaders, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, 
as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. There is authority there. Obey your elders and submit to them. And we can, we can unpack that and talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean, but it definitely means that sometimes your elders are going to come to you and say, I think you should do this, or I don't think you should do that. But look at that accountability piece. As those who will give an account. Those who take the mantle of an elder within a New Testament church are going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of how they have shepherded his sheep. Paul charged the Ephesian elders, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's heavy. And Peter says, let them do it without joy and without groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. So if Hope Bible Church is going to understand biblical eldership, biblical leadership, we're going to have to acknowledge that these things sound really hard to 21st century ears. But I do think the churches that ignore these things, that leave these things out, they're like skipping over the early parts of the Legos, and the structure is not going to function right. Are there elders out there who abuse their authority for their own personal gain? Yes, there are. Should those elders be held accountable? Yes, they should. Will God hold them accountable? Yes, clearly. But should those bad examples keep us from seeking the biblical model for church elders? Absolutely not. So for next steps, the obvious next step is going to be to look at what the Bible says about the character of an elder. So next week, we'll talk about elder qualifications, and the week after that, we'll talk about the role of elders biblically and at hope and hopefully cover some practical matters. I'll send these passages out to you this week in an email, but I'm going to be circling back around through some of these passages as we go. Acts 20, 18 through 38, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 5 through 9, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, and then Hebrews 13, 17, which I read earlier. I'll send those out to you. I would like to ask you to be thinking about these things, to be praying about these things. Let us know if you have questions. If we're going to spend this time eating our vegetables, let's make sure we get our fill, right? So in Acts 17, right after that scene in Thessalonica, Paul gets sent out and he goes to Berea. So I read to you through verse 10 earlier. Let me read to you verse 11. These are the Jews in Berea. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul is an apostle, right? Paul is literally going home at night and writing the pages of the New Testament. But these noble Bereans were going home every day and examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. Since I am not an apostle, how much more should you be examining the scriptures on an important topic like this to see if these things are so? And if I could leave you with this one thought this morning, it is this. Good church leadership is absolutely a two-way street. It is not just elders to the congregation because elders come from within the church. Remember, some of you in the pews right now will eventually be elders. The body recognizes about elders and appoints them. Elders shepherd the church. And then ultimately there is that command there to submit to the elders. I don't think the problem with biblical eldership is that it has been tried 
and found wanting, I think in most cases it hasn't been tried. And I would like that we would make it our aim to pursue biblical leadership. And I'll say it again. For some of you, pursuing biblical leadership will mean you will be a part of that leadership. So as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, in light of all of that, kind of heavy, we can know from this little meal that we're going to take right now that the church belongs to God. He has bought it with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has left us with everything we need. We, we have what we need from Christ in this body right now. When we need more, he'll give us more, but we have what we need. And one of the things that he told us to do is to gather and partake of this little meal. So we'll talk about this next week, but biblical leadership is entirely different than worldly leadership because it's rooted in self-giving service. Jesus himself said, I have come to serve, to, not to be served, but to serve. In the church, we don't lead by taking. We don't lead with degrees. We don't lead with power or prestige. We lead by giving and serving. And nowhere is that better illustrated than in this little meal that we're going to take in just a minute where Jesus directs us to remember the new covenant promises we enjoy right now because he purchased them with his body and his blood. So the, 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 our brothers and sisters who are going to hand out the bread and the cup can come and prepare to do that. Uh, I would ask that if you're here today, and you are not a follower of Jesus, you have not turned to the Lord from idols as the Thessalonians did so many years ago, then I would ask you to, to refrain. We're not trying to keep anything from you, but we would like to have opportunity to explain to you more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But if you are here and you're visiting with us and you are a follower of Jesus, please, please, please feel free to partake with us. Take the bread and the cup, hang on to it, and I'll come up here in just a minute and I'll read a passage as we take together.